You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Chapter 1, okay? That's where we've been the last couple weeks, and we're going to begin this morning in John chapter 14, but to do that... I want to begin by talking about the difference between the magic of Christmas and mystery of Christmas. The magic of Christmas, you, you, you grow up as a child um, and you're enthralled with the magic of Christmas, right? I mean, so as a little bitty child, um, it, we love the magic of Christmas. I mean, and the smaller you are, the more magical it is. I, I grew up, I, I was the oldest of five kids, um, and I, we loved Christmas at my house. I mean, Christmas was a thing. I mean, my mom would leave the house. First thing we'd do is we would raid the closet, man. We would go looking for the presents to see if we could find what it is that we were going to get. I had a sister. She's very mischievous. She's very, you pray for her still. She's very mischievous. Um, she would like try to open the presents like when my mom was gone. It looked, I can't believe she would do that, but try to find out what she was going to get when she when my mom wasn't there. I mean, but we love, I mean, so we just loved it. We loved everything about Christmas, the magic of Christmas. But the thing about the magic of Christmas, as you get older, it, it seems to fade a little bit. And you seem to have to do a little more here and a little more there to hang on to the magic of Christmas. That's why that the retail, I mean, so $3 trillion will be spent this holiday season in the U.S. alone in the holiday season so that we can hang on to the magic of Christmas. It's what the whole weird movie The Polar Express is about, right? It's about losing the magic of Christmas. I'll tell you that when the magic of Christmas, I, I, I remember the first moment the magic of Christmas sort of left. I, I remember it fading. It was when... Um, my mom, it was five of us, she's a single mom, and she was leaving to go to a Christmas party. She didn't go to a lot of Christmas parties, but she went to this one, and she got a babysitter for us, five of us. And I think my, me and my oldest sister were a little, um, well, we were a little uh, perturbed about that. We thought we were old enough to stay by ourselves. But for whatever reason, we had a babysitter. She goes off to this Christmas party, and we decided that we would do something fun. So we hid my middle sister, Sarah, in the Christmas tree. And so the babysitter was looking around. She thought, well, where's the other child? And we were like, what are you talking about? There's only four of us. <laughs> and she said, no, I know that there's five of you. We said, no, we would know there's only four of us. And so we carried this on for a long time until, you know, the gig was up. And Sarah's trying to climb out of the Christmas tree. But it turns out um, she didn't do it right. And you need to know about my mom. So we didn't have a lot of things, but we always had a beautiful Christmas tree. She was a tear decorator. She had the most beautiful, I mean, magical Christmas tree. And Sarah, coming out of the Christmas tree, knocks it over. And doesn't just knock it over, knocks it over and falls on it. And so everything is broken on the Christmas tree. And I remember at that moment, the magic of Christmas leaving <laughs> our house. And the babysitter, that poor girl, not knowing exactly what to do. So she leaves it there as evidence against the children and my mom coming home. And there's this thing about my mom. She is the most wonderful person. You'd, you'd meet her and you think, this is the most wonderful person in the world. And she has this alter ego. And she doesn't like it when she calls her this, 
but her alter ego is Big Mayor. And she walked in the door as mom, and within about 30 seconds, we saw Big Mayor come out. And that is officially when the magic of Christmas left <laughs> our home. The magic of Christmas. But to contrast that with the mystery of Christmas. See, as you open up the New Testament, the gospel writers, they're actually writing not about the magic of Christmas. They're writing about the mystery of Christmas. And, and, and while the magic of Christmas, we all experience it, it, it wanes, it fades, it, it seems to diminish as we get older. The mystery of Christmas is exactly the opposite. The mystery of Christmas continues to grow. The mystery of Christmas actually gets bigger. The more we grow, the more we understand, the more we mature, it gets bigger and bigger and richer and richer. In fact, the mystery of Christmas is something that we cannot fully comprehend in this lifetime. And I believe the New Testament gives us a hint that we will not fully comprehend in all of eternity this mystery of Christmas. John begins his gospel with the mystery of Christmas, not with the manger, not with Bethlehem as we have talked. He doesn't begin with the birth. He begins with creation. He begins actually before creation, before there was time. He takes his readers to the beginning of who Jesus is, where he's from, and why he came. Micah, the prophet, calls Jesus the ancient one. That's where John begins. And so if you'll pick up with me, John chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. We'll read to verse 18, and then we'll walk back through it. In verse 14, John says this, And the Word, this is the Word who he said before, the, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the beginning, and, and he was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son, or maybe yours says the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the, the unique one who is God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I, I told someone this week that this, this prologue, these first 18 verses here in John's Gospel, it's probably one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and it's always been hard to preach because there's so much there. I mean, you could spend your, 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 your whole life studying it, your whole life meditating on it, but one of the reasons that I love it so much is because of who wrote it. I mean, so John wrote it. He, he's one of Jesus' disciples. He, he, he grew up a fisherman. He became one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest friends. In fact, John calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. And John worshipped Jesus until the end of his life. 
Now, when I say that, I don't mean that John thought that Jesus was awesome at miracles and awesome at preaching and talked about him all the time. I don't mean that he was loyal to their friendship and that he defended him when people said things that were untrue or damaging. I don't mean that he thought of Jesus as a great man and that being close to him helped him be a better person. What I mean is that John worshipped Jesus as God. That John came to understand Jesus as the God of the universe, the second person of the triune God. And that's where it gets really hard to preach because it's hard to understand. See, the Bible presents God as one in three. One essence, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible reveals the activity of, of God that can only be understood in Trinitarian terms. So the Father's not the Son, the, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. All are God. God is one, three persons, one, one substance or, or nature or essence. Now, now hang with me. Well, what John came to understand about Jesus is that he is God. Now, now, now look, look up here for just a minute. God is invisible. Or, or let's say it this way. God is beyond the five senses. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. That, that, that's how the psalmist describes him. He, he doesn't dwell in a place made by human hands. The earth and all that belongs in it is, is God's. He holds all things together. He himself can't be held. He can't be seen, and yet he's present everywhere. The heavens display his handiwork. That's God. In Genesis 1, which is what John alludes to there at the very beginning, says that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. This speaking, this word, this is what John said. This speaking, this intimate act, this, this word itself, this, this is what John understood Jesus as the word of God made flesh. Now let that sink in for a second. So here, here's three very inadequate examples. We talked about one a couple of weeks ago. I told, I told you about gravity. You, you, you can't see it. You can't touch it. You, it's powerful and deniable. It's present everywhere. You jump off the roof. You're not going to fly. So imagine gravity became a person. I gave you that example. Here, here's another one. Imagine the heat from the sun became a person. You have the sun, you have the heat, you don't have one without the other, and the heat became a person. I got one more. I'm totally stretching here, but here's, here's one more, all right? It's for everybody under 25. The, the invisible, I guess it's invisible, World Wide Web, the Internet, that connects the whole planet, let, lets you email somebody, Skype somebody around the world, Imagine if the internet became a person. Dude walks in, says, hi, I'm the internet. Totally inadequate, but we're 
We're in the direction of what John is saying. He, that, that points us there. The, the Word of God became a person and dwelt among us. God became man. The Word of God took on flesh and lived among us. The, the Word that created us became one of us and at the same time never ceased for a second being God. And John came to understand this, or at the very least, we would say that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was able to write about it. And John worshipped Jesus as God, and he did so until the end of his life. He, he never waned. After Jesus was crucified and resurrected in a, in a new and, and glorified body and ascended into heaven, John was here, and Jesus was gone. He never stopped worshiping. And he, and he wrote these words 35 or, or 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And, and he thought about Jesus every day, and he remembered everything he taught, all the things that he did, and the way that he was, and their, and their conversations. And he remembered his arrest, and his torture, and his death on the cross, and his burial, and his resurrection as a and his ascension, and he, and he watched the church grow and the, and the spirit present in, in his life and in, in the life of those who believed. And he saw people die for believing in Jesus, and, and he himself was tortured. And at the end of his life, he still worshiped Jesus as God. And in these 18 verses, John writes about Jesus in a way that no other person has ever been written about. Ever. To the degree that if it's not true, it's blasphemy. I mean, it's not just a tall tale. It's blasphemy. Because what he writes is that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man and we saw him. We saw God. We heard him. We touched him. And we killed God. That's what he writes. I mean, don't miss that. It's, 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 it's massive. It's, it's more than we can comprehend in a whole Lifetime, and it's what John wrote, and it's what we say when we speak about the incarnation. That's what we say when we talk about Christmas. The Son of God, the Word of God, became man and at the same time never ceased being fully God. That's why, that's why the wind obeyed him. That's, that's why the waves obeyed him. That's why disease and sickness obeyed him. That's why the demons obeyed him and were afraid of him. Jesus is the word of God made flesh and dwelt among us. And it's the most profound statement anywhere, anywhere about the incarnation, about how God became a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. So, so, so John, in, in these verses, gives us four titles. We've looked at several of them. He's called the Word. He's called the Light. He's called
called the life. Here he's called the only son from the father. Maybe he's yours as the one and only. Here's his point. Through Christ the word, God has become audible. Through Christ the light, God's become visible. Through Christ the life, God's become tangible. Through Christ the son, God's become knowable. See, God's invisible, inaudible, intangible. He's become all those things in his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And without the incarnation, God would be inaccessible to us because we cannot ascend to his heights. So God, through his son, descends to our humanity. Jesus is God come near. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. So, so we have a few moments left. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two, two verses in, in these last few verses. I want to focus on verse 14 and I want to focus on verse 16. And the reason is because the pronouns in those two verses, they change. That they move from third person to first person. They, they, they move from they to we and us and then John also moves from the past to the present. He, he moves from before time began to real time, from, from history to experience, from what happened long ago to what's possible today in our own lives. What, what does God want? Our relationship to Jesus Christ to be like. In other words, let's say it this way. How are we to experience today something that happened over 2,000 years ago? And I think that verse 14 and verse 16 is God's desire for us today. So look at it again. So verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We've seen His glory, and we've received His grace. I think what John is saying in this, these verses and then what he plays out in the rest of his gospel is that God wants our relationship with Jesus to be marked by these two things. Seeing his glory and receiving his grace. And I would argue that that, that is the very essence of Christmas. That that is the mystery of Christmas. So we've seen his glory. Let's start there. I hope you can say that this morning. I hope that you've caught a glimpse of it in your life because it's a very important word. and it's, it's, I think it's hard to understand the message of the Bible if we don't understand the word. And so one of the best definitions, here's the best definition that, that I've seen, and I'll tell you what it is. So glory, here's, here's the definition I'll, I'll give you. It's the outward shining of the inward being of God. The outward shining 
of the inward being of God. So, so you might think of it this way. Th think of it as the sun. So you can't look at the sun directly, not without blinding yourself. But you can see the sunshine. You, you, you can see the radiance of the sun. You, you can see everything else because of the sun. If we were to look at God directly, we'd be consumed. And no human being can bear the sight of his glory. You can't see the sun. Look directly at the sun, but you can see the sunshine. We can't see God directly, but we can see the glory of God. The outward shining of the inward being of his glory. So where do we see it? So Psalm 19 says that we can see his glory in creation, in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see the glory of God in the created order and the beauty and the intricacy and in all its balance. But here's the truth. I've never been satisfied with the glory of God as we see it in the universe. We never have. We, we want to see more of God than we can see in nature. We do. I mean, go and, and buy a house on a beach that faces east and get up every morning and see the sun rise and be in awe And some morning, you'll wake up, and you know what it'll be? There'll just be another sunrise. Oh, every now and then, it'll, it'll still catch your attention. But at some point, there'll just be another sunrise. We want more. We've always wanted more. We want more of God than what we can see in nature. In Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, that's what Moses said. Moses has seen the glory of God. You know what? He saw the glory of God in nature. He saw the glory of God in the miracles on earth. He saw the glory of God displayed in front of Pharaoh. And then you know what he said to God? He said, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, Moses... Man, I love you, and you are my chosen, but you can't see my glory. It would absolutely consume you. But it's not because I don't love you. So in his grace, and in fact, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, you can read about it. He tells Moses of his infinite love and grace and kindness. He hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. He puts his hand over it. He walks by Moses, and he lets Moses see the reflection or the back of him. And it's so stunning, so dazzling, that when Moses comes down, the people around Moses can't even look at Moses. Because he's radiating. They can't, they can't even look at Moses from Moses seeing the mere reflection of the glory. We'd be consumed In Isaiah, the, the prophets, you get to the prophets, they dream. The, the, 
The prophets set their minds to dreaming about the day that we'll get to see the glory of God. That's what we want. One example, Isaiah 40. Here's what the prophet says. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's actually a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And then Jesus came. The word there is literally, the word dwelt, tabernacled among us. It's the glory of the Lord dwelt with Israel, tabernacled with Israel. And then it resided in the temple. And the presence of God was with Israel. All along. And in the saddest chapter in all the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11, when God comes to the end of his patience with his people, you know what happens? The glory of the Lord gets up from the holy of holies, leaves the inner chamber, leaves the outer chamber, exits the east gate, goes across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and descends into heaven and is gone. And Israel is left for the first time since it came out of slavery without the glory of God. When is the glory coming back? Well, John has announced it here. We've seen the glory. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, he's the invisible image of the invisible God. God's still invisible. He's beyond our senses, but Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. The, the beginning of the letter of Hebrews, the writer says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus would later say about his ministry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the rest of John's gospel paints the story of Jesus, paints the picture of God's glory through Jesus. In fact, the very next chapter, John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. Here's how the, John records it. This, the first of his signs. Remember, he turns the, the water into wine. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not just because the miracles are the sign of his power, but because they were the sign of the kingdom of Jesus. He was here. And then what happens is John is going to write story after story, scene after scene of the glory of God full of grace and truth. And you might think this, you might think that John is going to write about a Jesus who is like 
glowing like a light bright, right? Walking around Galilee. And people are like, man, that dude is so bright. I got to wear shades. Like a Corey Hart song or something, right? But, but you know what is so surprising about John's gospel and this glory that we behold in Jesus? See, I think this is why so many believers miss. So we long. See, I want more of God. I want to see it. And why we miss it? Because I think we're looking in the wrong places. Do you know where John shows us the glory of God in Jesus? Story after story and scene after scene. Here it is. As he fed the hungry and he healed the sick and he honored women and he welcomed little children and he made friends with sinners and outcasts and he touched untouchables. And when he got on his hands and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. John writes, we beheld his glory. And above all, you see his glory on the cross. The cross of shame and humiliation and self-giving sacrificial love. One writer said it this way. The cross is like a splendid theater in which the glory of God is revealed. It never shone brighter than when Jesus hung on the cross of shame. It is there we see his glory. When God's wrath for evil is poured out and his love for sinners is also poured out. So where are you looking? Where are you looking? Where are you searching for glory? It's what you were made to long for as those created in the image of God. Where are you searching for it? Seeing glory is part of the mystery of Christmas. The other is receiving grace. We we're made to receive His grace. So the relationship's not just a matter of seeing glory, but also a matter of receiving something from Him. Seeing and receiving, they go together. Seeing the glory, receiving the grace. So grace shows up four times in these few verses here. Here's how I would define grace. If, 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 if glory is the outward shining of the inner being of God, grace is this. It's the free and unmerited favor of God. Grace is generosity. It's the generosity of God. It's God's gracious kindness to the undeserving. Grace is God's taking the initiative in coming to our rescue, pursuing us in our sin even to the cross, grace is God stooping and loving 
and serving and lifting in grace like glory is seen most vividly at the cross. Probably heard it, grace, great acronym, God's riches, Christ's expense. So here's grace. Grace gives us what we do not begin to deserve. Grace can only be received. It can never be earned. Grace is not something you ever feel worthy of. It is not anything you can achieve or attain. Grace is something God gives freely, unconditionally, liberally. It defies human logic. And it offends human sensibilities. Grace. Forgiveness. Eradication of our guilt and shame and a stained conscience. You know what grace does? It brings peace with God. Adoption into His family. Gives you a new life in the Holy Spirit. A share in the glory that will one day be revealed. And in these gifts of grace, they're only the beginning. So, so John says it's out of the fullness that we have received. It's not that we've received the fullness. It's only out of the fullness. So there's this ocean of grace. Pure for drinking, satisfying for the soul. Ever available, freely offered. And John says it's grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. So, so what does that mean? Literally, in the Greek, it means grace in the place of grace. It means grace just keeps replacing itself. It's overlapping. It's like, it's, it's the, it's like, it's like waves. It's, so you go down to the beach and you watch the waves. You don't know where one ends and one begins. They just, they just roll on top of each other. That's how it's phrased. Waves of grace. Just rolling on. It's Romans 5.2 says we stand in grace. Literally, we're engulfed in the waves of grace. You don't live on past grace. You don't live on stale grace. You live in grace, replacing grace, replacing grace. Grace on top of grace. His mercies are new every morning. There's no gaps in His grace. It's an amazing statement. Amazing. The gifts and love and kindness of God that knows no end. John worshipped Jesus. This man he knew, this man who loved him, Worshipped him as God to the end of his life. You think about that. Never diminished. Seeing and receiving. It's the mystery of Christmas. So I ask you, have you, have you seen God's glory in Jesus? Have you received God's grace 
in Jesus. And I would say this, you don't just do it once. You, it's, you do it your whole life. I argue you do it for eternity. An eternity of seeing God in Jesus and receiving God's grace through Jesus. See, Paul, in his letter, he prayed for believers that they would see ever more the riches of his glory and grow ever more in the understanding of his grace. So you might say this, I think what Paul is praying for is Christmas lives. That all our days would be filled with the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. That we would find that Jesus is greater and greater and greater. And greater. You know, it's like... Um, Oh, Chronicles of Narnia. I've been, this is my third week. I haven't even quoted C.S. Lewis yet, so I've got to do it today, right? But you know Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia? She, uh, she's gotten older. And she, uh, she comes back through the wardrobe and she sees Aslan. And she she comes up to him, and he greets her, and she stares into him, and, and he says to her, you know, in his big voice, welcome, child. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. He says, that's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not, not because you're bigger? I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. That's Christmas. That's the mystery of Christmas. I'll tell you, that's exactly what John found. After 35 years, after 40 years, he writes the gospel. That's what he discovered. And then in the very last days of his life, Stranded on an island in Patmos. Before he goes to be with the Lord in heaven. He has one more encounter with Jesus on earth. And it's when Jesus comes to him because he wants him to write the revelation. And this is how that goes. He'll see Jesus one more time in the flesh while he is feet are planted here on earth. And this is how that happens. It says this. It says, Then I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. This is John writing. He hasn't seen Jesus in over 50 years. Maybe 60. Seen Him. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed on a long, with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, 
fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. For John, this one he'd worshipped his whole life had gotten bigger and bigger. And the truth of the incarnation is that 60 years later, Jesus, in a glorified body, in grace and truth, was able to lay his hand on him and say, Fear not, John. Have you seen his glory? Have you received his grace? That's the mystery of Christmas. That's what we're invited into. Listen, if you're chasing the magic of Christmas, good luck. Good luck. Three trillion dollars we'll spend, we're not going to catch it. The mystery of Christmas, slow down and let it catch you. If you would, let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. I thank you for the words that you inspired John to write. This one that walked with your son Jesus in the flesh. Walked with him and ate with him and spoke with him. And worshipped him as the God of the universe. To his last breath, and then more. And so, Father, we're here to confess this morning that we want Christmas lives, we want to see more glory. We want to see the glory of the Father in the Son. Father, we want to receive your grace this morning more and more through your Son, Jesus. Give us eyes of faith to see, hearts of faith to receive. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus. You're seated at your right hand in a, in a glorified body, still united with humanity. Wait for his return. We ask this in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.